We have another special guest speaker, so I want to invite up here uh, Daniel Hood. He's going to be preaching for us today, and Daniel's from um, the Hill City Church in Springfield, Columbia, which is a part of our Springfield, network. Missouri. Springfield, Missouri. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Columbia's the only city I think of in Missouri. But uh, Daniel's going to be preaching for us today, so I'm just going to pray for him and then uh, let him have at it. Dear God, thank you for um, just the fact that we can have a, a network of churches that your church is so much bigger than just uh, one local church here, God, but you have a, a church body that you're growing. And so thank you for Daniel being here, Lord. We pray that you would use him and, and speak through him, that um, your words would be reaching our hearts today, God. Uh, and Jesus, we thank you uh, just for who you are and the fact that we can grow closer to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Anthem. How are you? Good. Good to be here. Good to be with a fellow church. Isn't it cool? The ministry God has given the Salt Network of reaching the next generation. Uh, I love it. I love to be a Salt Network church. I love to be here. So usually when you speak at new places, the first like three or four minutes as a speaker is supposed to make a connection to the audience, establish common ground. Can we skip all that and jump into the sermon? Is that okay? I'm so glad to be here. I just don't want to waste any time because I want to get after this. Psalm 126 is where we're going to be today. Uh, we do a, a thing at our church, which I, it looks like you're doing this summer. We do a summer in the Psalms uh, where we just each week do a different Psalm. And so this is actually a sermon I did last year, last summer at our church. Um, and I'm excited to engage this, this scripture with you all again. Psalm 126. Now, when you look at your Bible, and, and please pull out your Bible, your phone, whatever you have, you'll see... Where it says, Psalm 126, it'll say, a psalm of ascents. You guys see that in your Bibles where it says that? What this is, is a collection of psalms in the middle of the book of Psalms that historically the Jewish pilgrims would sing on their way to Jerusalem. If you're a, a normal Jewish person living in Old Testament times, you would make a pilgrimage a few times a year to Jerusalem. If Anyone ever been to Jerusalem? Anyone? Yeah, it, it's a it's city up on a hill. And so you would come over the Mount of Olives and see Jerusalem and you would sing these psalms as you're walking to the temple. The temple would have been this magnificent sight, uh, this just awe-inspiring sight. And you would sing these psalms on your way to the temple uh, as part of your pilgrimage, as part of your worship to God. They're, they're not written to us, they're written for us for sure, but not necessarily to us. And so when you read the Psalms, it invites you not just in your own experience, but actually into the experience of others that have gone before you. So imagine, if you will, imagine you are a young Jewish man or woman in your 20s. And you're living in the days between King David and Jesus, there's about in the middle, 550 BC, so 500 years before Jesus will come, it's some time after King David has come, and you're living in this time, and you, your history of your people is one where God had delivered you in the days of, of, of Moses, and he's made you into a nation, and your people reached a high point under King David, and King David is your hero, you have heard stories and read psalms and heard about king david and it was a, your nation was at a high point with king david it was prosperous you ruled the world and then king david had a son named solomon solomon life and then after solomon israel starts to decline there's a, str a, a, 
a, a string, a line of kings that don't do things well. And slowly, Israel as a nation begins to decline. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging him. Took your king prisoner in the eighth year of reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut them in pieces, all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon king, none remained except the poorest people in the land. We know from history that Israel was besieged for a year and a half. Can you imagine? It carries you and anyone of any sort of importance off to Babylon and you are now in captivity. You're in exile. To tell you how barbaric this time frame, not just your Bible, but to tell you how barbaric this time frame is, the king, so Nebuchadnezzar, takes your king and all of your captives off to Babylon. He puts in a puppet king. So here's what he does. He shows up in Jerusalem. He kills that entire king's family, makes him watch his entire family get killed, and then plucks his eyes out. So the last thing he will see is his family being killed. This this is the barbaric time that, that they're living in here. Can you imagine losing everything? Can you imagine being in your 20s, growing up in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, and you are off in exile, and you are a slave, you're living in a land that is not yours, you've lost your temple, you've lost your home, you've lost your community, you've lost everything. Can you imagine that? See, this psalm invites us into a different perspective, into a lens of people who have lost everything. If this narrative doesn't work for you, if you can't connect to 550 B.C., let me give you a different narrative. Maybe you can connect here. You, uh, I got to travel to Senegal several times in Africa on the coast. And on the coast of Africa in Senegal, there's an island. And that's where when slaves were captured to, uh, and were treated awfully, and would have to live on this island for a certain amount of time waiting to be shipped off. Can you imagine being in Senegal in Africa, having a home, and you're betrayed by someone who knows you for some money, and you're sold into slavery, and you find yourself on an island waiting to be shipped across the sea to somewhere else where you will live the rest of your life in captivity. Can you imagine that? Let me give you a different one. I got to travel through Germany. I love World War II. I love World War II history and got to go to Dachau concentration camp. Can you imagine being a 20-year-old Jewish person living in Poland in the 1940s? And slowly the Nazi regime rises up and takes over the land, and you find yourself in a concentration camp, a prison camp, struggling to stay alive. Can, Can you imagine losing everything? When I prepared this sermon last year, I just watched... Uh, the movie Just Mercy. Anyone seen Just Mercy, the movie? It's about a, a, a young black man in the South, true story, who was convicted of murder of a crime he didn't commit and put on death row. Tells his story. Can you imagine being arrested and charged with a crime and convicted and sentenced to death knowing you are innocent? Can, can we put ourselves in the mindset of losing everything, of the, of the betrayal, the sense of betrayal of 
The world has turned on me. A person has turned on me. A system has turned on me. Can we put ourselves in that feeling of being powerless? Meaning, I have no way to change my current situation. I'm stuck. I'm in Babylon. I've been shipped to South America as a slave. I'm in Dachau concentration camp. I'm in prison. I can do nothing to change my situation. Can you imagine the fear of what will, t- what will happen tomorrow? Will I get beaten tomorrow? Will I get tortured tomorrow? Will I live tomorrow? Will, will my children live tomorrow? Can you imagine losing everything? Just in the past year and a half through COVID, we've got like a little drop of losing some freedom, haven't we? And how awful was it? I didn't get to go to my favorite restaurant. I have to wear a, ma- a mask. We got a little drop, haven't we? Just a little taste. Can you imagine that 10,000 times? See, Psalm 126 invites the reader into the story of an oppressed people. Into their narrative. It invites a reader to hear the cries of the oppressed from one generation to tell the story to another and now for us to sit here and not just live life in our own story, but actually to look at those who have gone before us. That's what this psalm's about. Let's go to verse 1. So you're this person. Let's, let's live whichever narrative you most connect to of the, of the four I shared. Let's live in that narrative for a few minutes. So you're in captivity, and then Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. Here's, so you're that person. You've been taken off, and then you're freed. That, that's the language of the first three verses. Here's what it says. This, it felt like a dream. Can you imagine thinking that your future is bondage and then all of a sudden you're let go? It's like a dream. You're, you're on death row and you didn't know you didn't do it and all of a sudden they come to you and say, hey, sorry for the confusion, you're released, the prison door is open and you walk free. This is the language. It felt like a dream. And they said among the nations, so other nations have seen what's happened. It's like, oh, Yahweh has done great things for them. They were in captivity and now they've been freed. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us, you say. You, you, You go to your friends, can you believe it? We're free. We've been let go. We've been saved. No longer is our plot in life to work as slaves, we are free. The Lord has done great things for us. It gets you in this mindset of this 20-something-year-old Israeli person who has been off in Babylon in captivity and has been let go, and they're walking back to Jerusalem. They come over the hill, the Mount of Olives, which is the, the hill right before they enter Jerusalem, and they see the temple. And they're finally coming home. It felt like a dream. 
The Lord has done great things for us. And then you wake up and realize it was a dream. See, this psalm is written in present tense, but it's future focused. It's written through the mindset of people who are oppressed that are not freed yet. That's why verse 4, the prayer is, Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Restore our fortunes. See, if you're that Israelite person living in Babylon, you have this psalm. You know this psalm. But verse 1 through 3 are not true for you yet. It's a psalm about deliverance that has not happened yet. And it's a psalm that while you're in captivity might stir in you a sense of hope. It's a psalm where you are wishing and praying that your chains are gone, but they are not gone. It's a psalm of you wishing and praying that the American or British army will come and liberate your concentration camp, but there is no army to be seen. It's a psalm written that when you're wrongly convicted and you're praying for release, but release has not happening. Um, I remember when I, Just Mercy had a profound effect in my life. One of the, the, the scenes I think in the movie that was so powerful for me uh, this, this guy's been wrongly convicted of murder and there's a witness that he thinks is going to tell the truth and get him off. And so he's been in prison a number of years. He goes to the courtroom where he thinks this witness is going to tell the truth and he's finally going to be released. And you guys remember, the witness lies again. And he had left the jail that day thinking he would never be back. The witness lies. He goes back into the jail and there's this moment in the movie where the wit- he's been in the court, the witness has lied, he's going back to his prison cell, back onto death row, and they're walking him to his cell, and he's getting ready to enter into the cell, and he just like puts his hands up on the jail. So anyone seen this? You remember this? And just refuses, just like locks up like this. And I remember I'm watching this movie, and when that happens, I can feel my body just like tense up. I can't imagine that. Knowing I am innocent. That's the invitation of Psalms, is to put yourself in that narrative. And then the prayer, verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Our fortunes is our livelihood. God, restore us back to Jerusalem. God, take me home. God, set me free. It's a prayer of Yahweh, the, the God who is involved in the affairs of men, to rise up on your behalf. That's what it's a prayer for. See, see, here's what we believe as Christians. We don't believe that God is this distant God that's uninvolved in the world. That's called deism. See, deism is the belief that God created the world, gave it a good spin, and then let it go. That's deism. We believe in Yahweh who is involved in the affairs of men. Are you, you with me? But can you imagine being in captivity, knowing you believe in that God, and asking yourself, God, where are you? That's the prayer in verse 4. God, 
Where are you? Restore our fortunes. And they, and they give a metaphor like the streams of Negev. Uh, the streams of Negev are small mountain streams that are dry most of the year. But when it rains in the mountains, they can just like flash flood. And all of a sudden, a dry, bed, a, a, a dry stream becomes a raging river. And the metaphor is, God, restore us and we believe you can do it as quickly and as powerfully as that mountain stream becomes a, a river from a dry creek bed. That's the metaphor. Restore us. Restore us quickly in your power, in your might, like a, like a flash flood comes through a dry spring. That's the prayer. So it's a prayer, Psalm 126, for those who are suffering and have not been delivered, praying that God would act on their behalf. And then I love where it goes. Let's, let's look at verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for show, sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. So it's a metaphor. Here's the metaphor. That you're in captivity. You're praying to Lord for the Lord to come and save you, to redeem you, to liberate you. He hasn't done it yet. So what are your options? You can sit and wallow in your misery... You can become angry and rebel and, ki and be killed. Or you can, what the Bible will say, sow in tears. It's a very strong metaphor. So, so here's the idea of sowing in tears, that you're still in captivity. But there's work that has to be done. Because if you don't work, you don't eat. And sowing in tears is the idea that I'm in a situation that is awful. I'm praying for the Lord to save me. He hasn't done it yet. So what do I need to do? I need to go plant my seed. And it's this metaphor, this image of someone in captivity taking a seed in the ground and planting it and wiping the tears. And planting it. God, where are you? God, this is awful. And please, God, this, that's the metaphor. Sowing in tears is doing the work that has to be done while grieving and praying out to God in faith that He can work and He will work somehow in your life. That pray, sowing in tears means your tears are still coming. Your hands have tremors because of the trauma, the stress that you're under. Your back bears the scars, but there are fields that need to be planted because if I don't plant, I don't eat. I must go on. The crops will not wait for me to be okay with my situation. I have to sow in tears. I have to bring my tears with me. That's what sowing in tears means. So Psalm 126 begins 
with this realization of rescue. I've been freed. Oh, praise God. Shouts of joy. And then realizing, no, that's not my situation. With a prayer, God, act on my behalf. God, come and save me. To then an inward dialogue to yourself of, okay, what can I do? So in tears. So in tears. See, this is different. Sowing in tears, this idea is I bring my pain with me. I'm processing my pain. I'm in touch with it while I'm doing the work that, I, that must be done for me to go on living. Sowing in tears is different than stuffing down your tears. Hey, let me, so sowing in tears is this idea of I'm processing my pain. I'm feeling my pain. I, I'm, I'm living in my sorrow. I'm aware of my sorrow, yet I'm working for the future. That's different than stuffing down. I'm fine. I'm good. Sticks and stones, they'll break my bones. But words, no, I'm, I'm good. See, that is stuffing down your tears. A coldness, a hardness, a callousness that in order to deal with the pain of life, I just disconnect from it. But see, here's the problem with pain. It will eventually come out. It'll come out in some way. If we don't process, if we don't let our tears, our anger, our sadness come out in healthy ways, it will come out in broken ways. Pain that is not processed will be passed on to others. And if I don't process my pain, I will just disassociate with it. I will work nonstop to try to give me a sense of purpose. I will go to pleasure. I will go to, to sport. I'll need to be I'll do something to deal with my pain if I don't process it. That's, that's what happens when it's stuffed down. It just explodes. That's not sowing in tears. Nor... Is sowing in tears, just uh, dumping out it all, like wallowing, self-pity, woe is me. That, that's not sowing in tears. That, that, that I just wallow in my grief, that I let myself rage and just flip tables and, and just let my anger go free. That's dumping out my tears. What the Bible, what Psalms gives us an invitation to do is to sow my tears, to process my tears, to let my tears flow as I am doing the work that God has called me to do. You, you know how you process? So there's two primary emotions that need to be um, engaged to deal with hurt and trauma. It's this. It's anger and sadness. See, sometimes we think anger is wrong. No, the Bible says be angry but do not sin. Anger, there's a healthy, righteous anger. And there's a healthy sadness. Not a wallowing, not a woe is me, uh, the world's turned against me, but just a grief of the situation I am in. Sowing in tears is, means processing anger and sadness while I'm doing the work that must be done. I have dirt on my face. 
My hands are cracked. My knuckles are bleeding. I have grief and anger and I'm sowing my seed. Praying that God will deliver me as I do it. But knowing if I don't do this, I will not live. So what about us? Psalm 126 is a psalm for every generation. It's it's an invitation for us to see our story through the lens of someone else's story and then to look at our own story and say, okay, if God can deliver them and if they can hope for God to deliver them, and process their, their, their tears and their anger and continue to work hard and continue to do the work God's called us to do. If they can do that, then I can do that. So Anthem Church, what does sowing your tears look like for you? Where do you know betrayal in your life? Where do you know injustice? Where do you know being powerless to change your situation? Because Psalm 126 invites you to those places. I know we normally don't want to go there. We want to distance ourselves, not think about it. But actually Psalm 126 invites you right into where do I know pain? The thing I love about the Bible, it does not lie to us. It does not lie to us about the brokenness of the world. But actually what the Bible does, it invites us into the brokenness of the world with a different perspective of sowing in tears. Which, as Christians, we're not often good at. And we love verses and we can throw them on a coffee cup like all things work to the good of those who love Jesus, which is a great coffee cup verse. And it's true but not from a detached, well, I won't feel my pain, but all things work through the good. That verse is connected to sowing in tears, that I am doing the work God has called me to do, believing that God will work on my behalf, sowing, processing my tears, my anger, hoping that God will work in the midst of it. That's what that song, that that scripture is about. Where do you know betrayal? Where do you know powerlessness? Where, where do you know injustice? Did, you, did your heart just get cold? Did you become calloused? Well, those people hurt me. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Never again, never again will I put myself in an environment like that. Never again will I offer my heart to another man or to another woman because of how I've been hurt. Never again will I do that. Have you, have you allowed yourself to go there? I have. And Psalm 126 is an invitation in that moment to say, no, 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 don't get calloused. Don't, get, don't allow your anger to be uncontrolled. Continue to sow in tears. Continue to do the work that God has called you to do while processing the hurt that you have felt. Where have you found yourself in tough times just wallowing in pain, wallowing in sorrow. Woe is me. The world's against me. This is so bad. I've been there. And one, Psalm 126, an invitation to say, no, 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 that, there's work to be done. The, the land will not wait for me to be okay before I have to plant my seed. 
I must get up and go. Sowing in tears is the invitation of the Psalms to process as you do what God has called you to do. Not to stuff down my tears. Here's a, here's a, I love music too. Here's a song. Uh, Shoot me down. I won't fall. I'm titanium. No, you're not. No, you're not. Now you can convince yourself of that. Oh, that didn't affect me. Yes, it did. It did. And to be honest in your faith and say, man, I was hurt. I'm scared. I'm not titanium. Jesus wept. If Jesus wept, surely I can. Nor do I want to just like dump out my tears and wallow in pain and sorrow and misery. I want to sow my tears. I want to process while doing the work God has called me to do. Here's what it could look like. Um, For some of us, it's, I need to go to counseling. I I don't know, we're pro-counseling at our church. We believe in counseling. We believe it's a good gift of God. I need to go to counseling and actually process the hurt that's in my past so I don't pass it on to the next generation. Uh, I have a lot of debt. And I can just try to pretend that I don't have debt or I can just wallow and, oh, God, I don't know what to do with this. Or I can say, you know what? We're going to start paying on this debt. And it's hard. And it's a long journey. And it's difficult. But we're going to sow in tears. It's to say this. Um, I was hurt in a church once. I've been hurt in the church. And I, wanna, and I come to Anthem Church and I, and I want to just kind of disengage. I want to come and show up. But I will not get involved I will not join a group. I will not serve because I will never get hurt again. Sowing in tears say this, I've been hurt, but I'm going to step in. I'm going to join that group even though it's the scariest thing for me to do. I'm going to go serve again and use my gifts for the Lord even though that cost me at a time in my life. I'm going to go serve. I'm going to go invest. It's sowing in tears. Uh, marriage is sowing in tears. Anyone want to tell the truth here? <laughs> marriage is sowing in tears. God, I don't understand this woman. I don't understand her. I love her. I don't understand her. God, help me serve her today. It's for a woman to say, God, he is driving me crazy. And the last thing I want to do is show him any sort of honor or respect. But I'm going to plant that seed. Believing that you will work in the midst of it. That the result of sowing in tears is a harvest of joy. Look at verse 6. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, here's the promise, here's here's what we're holding on to shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves, his harvest, with him. See, sowing in tears is to know darkness, to know death, to be in touch with the wounded parts of ourselves, yet to hold to faith in God and hope that he will work and to keep engaging in what God has called us to do. See, our pain 
our tears are meant to transform us. They're meant to transform us. See, here's what healthy anger does. Now, rage is different than healthy anger. Healthy anger says this was wrong. Anger leads us to change. That's what healthy anger does. It leads us to say things will change and I'm going to make a difference. What's happened to me will not happen for others. I will make a change. The civil rights movement was birthed out of anger, a desire for change. Sadness will lead us to empathy for others. See, your pain, your, your, your grief, your anger are meant to transform us. Our anger connects us to desire for change. Our sadness connects us to empathy for others. When I have felt sadness for my own betrayal, I am able to empathize with others who have been betrayed. Are you processing your hurt, your fears, your doubts? Are you sowing in tears? Because your tears, your hurt, are part of the story that is yours, that is to make known the story of Jesus. That's why we're here. This song invites us to a homecoming where there's a great harvest, where we hear, well done, and that we are proclaiming the story of Jesus in the midst of it. Psalm 126 points to our deliverance. If I sow in tears, I will reap with shouts of joy. Now, let's go back to that first story. You're the young Israelite who was taken to Babylon. You might die in Babylon. You might not realize verse 6 in your lifetime. But what verse 6 tells you is there's more than your lifetime. There's a bigger story that you will be delivered, whether in this life or another. This is what uh, Paul praises. He's in jail, and, and this is Philippians 1.19. He says, I know, this is Paul, I know that through the prayers and the help of the Spirit, that this will turn out for my deliverance. What's the this? Him in chains, his, him in prison. He says, I'm confident that my imprisonment, my chains will turn out in deliverance. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. I know I will be delivered. Now, I may be delivered in death. I may die in prison. But it, my faith tells me there's a bigger story that I will be delivered. Or I may be set free, but either way, I will be delivered. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the pain you've been through, the struggles in your life, that the promise is, verse 6, that you will reap souts of joy, that you will be delivered, but the promise is not always what you want it to look like? It's clinging to, I believe, God will deliver me, whether in this life and this age, or the age to come. So therefore, I will sow in tears. I will do the work that God has called me to do because this will turn out for my deliverance. And ultimately, Psalm 126, it's a psalm about Jesus. Because Jesus knew suffering. Jesus knew betrayal. 
Jesus knew being wrongly convicted. Jesus knows our suffering. And Psalm 126 is the story of Jesus who cried out on the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? That's verse 4. God, deliver me. I know you can do this. Why have you forsaken me? Yet, the Bible says, with the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What's the joy set before him? Knowing he was going to ransom many and he would be at the right hand of the Father. That's verse 6. See, this story It's a story about Jesus. See, Jesus went into exile so that we might come home. Do you realize Jesus' life was substitutionary for you, for me, for us? That the pain that Jesus went through, that the story of Psalm 126 that Jesus lived was for our behalf? That's the plot twist of the Bible. That the very God that created the world would come down himself and live the pain of the world to ransom many. So Psalm 126 is a psalm about what Jesus has done on our behalf. Jesus went into exile so we could go home. Jesus took on chains so that we might be free. Jesus' body was broken so that ours might be redeemed. Jesus went to death row that we might be released. Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Jesus sowed in tears so that we may have shouts of joy. It is a psalm of hope in the middle of oppression, in the middle of struggle. It's a psalm believing that God can and will act, that I will be delivered in one way or another. And ultimately, it's a psalm that points me to Jesus who went before me and sowed tears on my behalf that I might have shouts of joy and I might respond with saying, okay, now I will sow my tears. So psalm teaches us, don't ignore pain. Let it transform you. Let your suffering do something in you. And let it connect you to the story of Jesus. And point you to your hope. Of an age to come. Where there is no suffering. And there is no death. And there is no slavery. And there is no oppression. Because in the words of Jesus, it is finished. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this psalm that's that's a psalm of your life. May it give us hope in the midst of our struggles and our doubts and our worries that we are going through, may this psalm stir in us a resolve to process our tears, our anger, and to continue working, believing that you will work for good as we sow our tears. I pray for uh, us collectively this morning that you would bring us hope in the midst of whatever we are going through. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.